as we um, kick off Holy Week, we're going to take a brief break from our series in Acts, and we're going to start this series today called Chainbreaker. And we're going to start today by examining the nature of the chains that God breaks. So before we get rolling, you might want to grab your study guide, either, either from your worship folder or, you know, through the New Life app, if you do that. And we're going to be looking at a number of scriptures today, so you might want to have the word ready, whether it's paper or electronic, it might be helpful. Today is going to be a little bit different kind of message. We're going to have sort of a family chat. I'm going to talk straight with you. I'm going to talk about some things that our culture either doesn't want to talk about or they just consider it fiction. But I want us to get beyond what we see on TV or in movies or what we read on the internet. I want us to get past what our friends and neighbors and coworkers might think. To move beyond what's comfortable for us to believe. I want to refocus this morning on the truth. Now, I think the concept of truth has taken a real beating in our day. Many in our society would say that what's true for me might not be what's true for you and vice versa. This idea of relativism that what's true varies depending on the person or the circumstances, that's really quite pervasive today. This whole idea of relativism really comes from a humanistic point of view. What I think, what I believe, what I want is the arbiter of what's true. But there's a problem with that relative view of the truth. First, what if you and I disagree on the truth? It's going to lead to some serious conflicts. Now, if it's just you and I, maybe we get past that. But if all of us have our own ideas about truth, it's just anarchy. But there's even a more fundamental problem if you believe the Bible. Relative truth flies in the face of belief in an all-powerful God. The relativistic view puts man on the throne of the universe, where we're our own God. And in our culture, that's kind of where things are, right? You know, you listen to the radio or TV, you look at social media or things online. That's the prevailing view. Human beings are in control of their lives and... And what, and what happens? It, it, it's all about us. We don't have to answer to anybody. We can do whatever we want. We're in total control of our lives and our destinies, and nobody can tell us what's true or right. But folks, rest assured, there's one being on the throne of the universe, and it's not a human being. It's Jehovah God, and he decides what is true. He embodies truth, and he's unchanging. That means there is absolute truth. One version of the truth defined by God that applies to all of us. Now, whether you believe in God or you don't, it doesn't change the fact that he's in control of everything. Our puny opinions about what's true and what's right, they don't matter one little bit. He decides what truth is. Now, if we accept that God is the only one that defines what's true, then it follows that what he thinks is what matters when it comes to how we should think and act and live. And that brings me to our topic for today. And it's a topic that's not talked about much these days outside of the church. In fact, I would say in many churches, it's not talked about 
very much anymore. And it's a subject that reminds us of the power and sovereignty of God, but it also reminds us of our true place in the order of things. And that topic is sin. Now, I know that's a subject that's no fun to talk about, but we can't really understand much about the redemptive work of God over the centuries without understanding sin. We really can't understand ourselves without coming to grips with the reality of sin. Now, I said earlier that God embodies what is true. God is holy. We just sang about that, right? That means he's perfect. His character encompasses everything that is good and pure and right. Now, we human beings, we aren't perfect. We might want to do good things. We might want to do what's right. But we don't always do it. So what is sin? Sin is anything that breaks God's laws, anything that leaves us short of the perfect righteousness of God. And none of us are perfect. The Bible tells us we've all sinned, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When that verse says all, it means all. Everyone. Every one of us has sinned. Now you may be hearing you say, well, I'm not a follower of Jesus. That doesn't apply to me. Well, guess again. No matter who you are, no matter what you believe, since God is the only source of truth in the universe, when you consider uh, things you've done sin, whether you think they're sin or not, it doesn't matter. We've all sinned. Now, to understand sin, we have to consider what God's law is. How do we judge whether we've broken God's law without knowing what it is? How does God want us to live our lives? Well, we can start by looking at the Ten Commandments. God gave us these rules for living. He gave them to Moses thousands of years ago. And they're a good place to start because they, kind of, they really reflect God's character. God hasn't changed over the centuries, and neither has human nature either. So what are these commands from God? Well, you can read the whole list in detail in Exodus chapter 20, but here's a quick overview. Don't have any other God but God alone. Don't worship idols. Don't misuse the name of God. Dedicate a day for rest and for God. Honor your parents. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't envy what someone else has. Now, that list seems simple, but it's challenging, right? Think back over your week. Did you keep all those perfectly? And remember, number nine is don't lie. Or how about what Jesus said was the greatest commandment? A guy comes up to him, Matthew 22, verse 36, and says, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You're loving God with everything in you? You're loving others as yourself? Or if you really want to be challenged, read the book of James. He has a whole lot to say about the way we ought to live. And really, what, most of what James says just expands on these commands we've already talked about. Most people think of God's commands as like these things we shouldn't do, right? 
But James also reminds us about the other side of the coin in chapter 4 and verse 13. He said, or verse 17, he says, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now, the Apostle Paul is probably the greatest Christian that ever lived. He started out devoted to destroying Christianity and its practitioners, but then he had an encounter with Jesus along a road that changed his life. And after that, he traveled all over the known world teaching about Jesus, planting churches, training pastors. He wrote over a third of the New Testament, and he boldly proclaimed Christ to rulers and kings. He risked death and spent time in prison for telling people about Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7, starting in verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me. That is my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out. For I I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I want to do what I do not do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. See, Paul knew we were all chained by sin. We fight this constant battle with what the Bible calls the flesh. It's it's the sinful element of our human nature, the part that rebels against God and his laws. Paul understood the battle we fight every day, moment by moment. Even if we want to do good, we don't always do it. And the things we want to do, we don't do those things. Is that way for Paul, and we can understand it because we go through the same thing today. You know what I'm talking about. Think back over your week. Was there a time you said something you wish you hadn't? I have. Have you done something you wish you hadn't done? I have. Is there something you should have done but didn't? Got me on that one too. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 1 says that sin easily entangles us. And I resonate with that. I've heard it said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, it'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Now think about that for a second. Whoever said, it's my goal in life to become an alcoholic? Nobody says that. But it starts with one drink, and then it becomes another one, a little bit more, and a little more, and before you realize what's happened, you're in a situation you never intended. One day you look at yourself and wonder, how did I get here? And I'm not just picking on that. The same can be said of lying or gambling or drugs or overeating or sexual sin. One little compromise sends us sliding down a slippery slope. We are easily entangled. So how does sin chain us? These things that we really don't want to be involved in, how do they snag us? How do we become entangled in them? 
Well, I think there's, there's three things. First, there's the lure of sin. Sin's attractive. It, it, it looks desirable. It seems like it, it promises us something that's going to somehow fulfill us. See, each of us have this hole in our being. It's a hole that's God-shaped. God intended for us to fill it up with a relationship with him. But we often look to other things in this world to try and fill that hole instead. You know, just like we're talking about sin today, and a lot of people want to pretend it doesn't exist, the same's true with Satan. But he's real. And he wants to destroy you in your life. John 10.10 tells us he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He and his minions lie to us. They say, hey, come on, you want this. You deserve this. It's going to make you feel good. And you might feel good momentarily. In Hebrews 11.25, it talks about Moses bypassing the fleeting pleasures of sin. And that's how it is. You might feel good temporarily, but in the long run, you're going to feel bad. Sin may be attractive. It may look fulfilling, but it's empty. And before you fall for that old line from comedian Flip Wilson back in the day, the devil made me do it, you don't get off the hook that easy. Sure, he might lie to us. He might hold up that passing pleasure of sin and and, and tempt us to engage in it. But James reminds us we're responsible for our own actions. James 1, starting in verse 13, he says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You've got to prepare yourself for those moments, the moments when you're tired, when you're down, when you're most vulnerable to temptation. Make a decision now that you're going to resist. Stay far from sin. Protect yourself from situations that lead to compromise and start you down that slippery slope. In a mountainous country many years ago, King was looking to hire a driver for his carriage. And he asked each one of the three finalists about their ability to control the horses on the narrow roads near dangerous cliffs. The first one said, I can get a foot from the edge and not go over. The second one said, I can get six inches from the edge and not go over. The third one said, I'm going to stay as far away from the edge as possible. Which one do you think the king hired? Don't go right up to the edge of sin's cliff. Listen to me, folks. Some of you in this room today, you're going a foot or six inches from the edge of something you know you shouldn't be involved with. Maybe you're hanging over that edge already. Stay as far away from the edge of sin as possible. Get out now before it's too late. We get entangled due to sin's lure, but we also get entangled in another way too. The second way is the guilt of sin. Now this one, I think, is is deeper than sin's lure. The guilt of sin makes you feel hopeless. It it makes you feel like you can never be forgiven. Many of you know all too well what I'm talking about here. 
so many people live in this guilt in a way that just cripples them. They're paralyzed. They, they don't live an effective life because they feel crushed by the guilt of their past. Now, I think you could ask many people in this situation, don't you realize that the promises of sin are a lie and, and, and that guilt is just there to, to make you feel bad? And a lot of them would say, yeah, but it doesn't matter. I, I just can't escape it. I feel like there's no hope. When you're in this situation, you can't fight the lure of sin because you're trapped by the guilt of sin. There's an answer for this, but we'll get to that in just a minute. Then third, there's the consequence of sin. There are natural consequences of sin in this life. Galatians 6, 7 talks about that when it says this. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. In other words, let's say you rob a bank and you get caught, you end up in prison. Well, you may be sorry that you did it. You might ask God to forgive you, but you're still in jail. There's consequences to actions. That's a reality of life, and being a believer in Jesus doesn't change that. But there are also eternal, eternal spiritual consequences of sin. Our sin creates a barrier between us and a holy God. God can't tolerate being around sin. And as I said earlier, God's perfect. He's pure. By his very nature, he could never sin. And he can't tolerate sin in his presence. That means, because of our sin, we're, we're alienated from God. It's as if we're standing on one side of a great canyon, and God's on the other side, and there's no way to cross over to Him. We're separated by this canyon of sin. Now, I, I know that can feel crushing. The weight of our sin, it's, it's guilt, it's consequences, the struggle to escape sin's lure. It's discouraging for many of us to think about. What can break through that barrier between us and God? Well, there is an answer. Paul told us about his personal battle with sin in Romans chapter 7, but back in chapter 6 of that same book, he lays out some really important truth about sin and how we should deal with it. I know your study guide says Luke, but trust me, it's Romans. And we're going to focus there for the remaining time in the Word today. Romans 6, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we all know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its evil desires. 
Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness, for sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. I think this passage breaks down into four parts, so we're going to take a look at each of them one at a time. First, verses 1 through 4. Should we go on sinning? Paul starts with this question. Should we keep on sinning so that we can see grace in action? Now, before we answer that, let's get to what grace means. In this context, it's talking about the grace that God shows to people. Remember I said that God's perfect. He he can't stand to be in the presence of sin. It creates this barrier between us and God. Well, later in chapter 6, in verse 23, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. God doesn't look at our sin and say, well, you know, this person's better than that person, or, you know, this sin, really not that bad. James 2.10 says, if we're guilty of breaking any of the law, it's as if we have broken it all. And the punishment of death isn't like the death penalty on here on earth. You die and it's over. It means an eternal death, separated from God forever in hell. To bridge that sin canyon between us and God, someone has to take the death sentence for our sin. And the one to take that punishment has to be perfect. Enter Jesus Christ. God made a way for us to have a relationship with him despite our sin because Jesus took the punishment for us. Jesus lived a perfect life, died an undeserved death on a cross, taking the punishment each of us deserved. He was our substitute. But it didn't end there. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. That's the grace Paul is talking about. Jesus can be a bridge that allows us to cross that canyon between God and each of us. We can have a personal relationship with a holy God as long as we put our faith in him. So what's the answer to Paul's question? We don't have to guess. He answers it himself. No, we should not go on sinning to see more of God's grace. By no means, he says. He says in verse 2, if you accept the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf because of God's grace, we have died to sin. Now, does that mean if we believe in Jesus, we don't sin anymore? Well, of course not. We still sin in this life. We, we battle the flesh every day. But Paul says here, if we died to sin, we can't continue living in it. In other words, yes, we'll sin, but it shouldn't be our habit. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about how baptism is a picture of that change in our lives. We, we've died to sin just as Jesus died and we're raised to live a new life just as Jesus was raised. Second, in verses 5 through 7, we're united with Christ in death. Paul says that we accept God's gift of grace, we're united with Christ in two important ways. And first, he says you're, we're united with him in death. That seems like an odd thing to say, doesn't it? You know, you've heard that pirate saying, dead men tell no tales, right? Well, dead men don't live in a lifestyle of sin either. Paul's saying that our, our sinful nature, that part of us that willingly wants sin to sin, it's been, it's been crucified, put to death just as Jesus was. Not that we'll never sin again. 
Because we will. In this life, we're going to battle the flesh right up to the end. But as verse 7 says, we won't be slaves to sin any longer. He says if we've died, we, we, we've, we've been set free from sin. Being united with Christ in his death breaks those chains of sin. We, we have the power to live a new life, as Paul says in verse 4. Ephesians 1, verse 18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The third part of this passage, verses 8 through 11, we're united with Christ in life. So we're not only united with Christ in death, but we're united with him in his resurrected life. Paul says that Jesus can't die again. Death has no mastery over him. He says in verse 10 that the death Jesus died, he, he died to sin once for all. Again, if we're united with him in that death, we have his power available for us to use in our ongoing battle of sin. Folks, I, I think the biggest problem we have in the struggles, we don't call on that power. Remember earlier I said we, you know, we have to deal with the three chains of sin, lure, guilt, consequence, right? We have a lot of trouble when we try with breaking sin's lure by just toughing it out, by just working hard to behave better. That's backwards. We have to understand that if you've accepted Christ's death as your substitute, Jesus has nullified the eternal consequences of sin on your behalf. You aren't separated from God by your sin anymore. God looks at you and instead sees the sinless perfection of Jesus. Through the gift of eternal life that Jesus brings, then you have a legal right to break free from the guilt of sin. You don't have to be perfect. Jesus died to free you from that. We don't have to live chained by guilt over our sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Did you catch that? When we confess our sins, God will forgive our sins. He will cleanse us and make us pure. Which sins? It says all unrighteousness. And I said earlier, we, we may feel like we can never be forgiven, but it just isn't so. Jesus paid the ultimate price to give us forgiveness for sin. The only condition is we have to confess our sin. We have to acknowledge it, repent, turn from it. Like Paul says, we don't need to live in it. When those voices of the enemy come and speak words condemning us, reminding us of our sin, trying to get us to live in guilt, remember what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives us life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If you believe in Jesus, you're not condemned by your sin. Jesus has set you free from sin's guilt. Some of you, you need to memorize those verses. When the enemy comes against you, you need to bring, be bringing that back to your, your mind, your thoughts. And then once those eternal spiritual consequences of sin and the guilt are wiped away, sin just doesn't have the same lure anymore. 
That's how you lay hold of God's power to defeat sin, not by behaving better, but by believing better, by knowing that you've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. He's already defeated sin's eternal penalty on your behalf. So back to Romans 6. Paul also says the life Jesus lives, he lives to God. That means Jesus lives for the glory of God. He's all about making God the Father look as glorious as possible. He wants everyone to recognize the character, the, the pure goodness and love of God, the, the holiness and perfection we've talked about this morning. Jesus is our example in all things. If, if we're united with him in his resurrected life, then we too should be living a life that's the best reflection on God that we can. Not a perfect life, but a life that isn't in slavery to sin. One aside here, in our battle with sin, we should follow the example of Jesus in dealing with temptation. In Matthew 5, the devil shows up and tempts Jesus, right? He, he hits Jesus with three temptations. How does Jesus counter him each time? With Scripture. Know the word so you have a weapon to swing in your battle with sin and the enemy. And finally, the last part of the passage. Verses 12 through 14. Give yourself to God, not sin. Paul says we shouldn't let sin reign in our body so we obey its desires. In other words, don't let your sin keep you in chains. Don't let it run the show of your life. Don't let it rule over you. Paul says, don't let any part of you be used as an instrument of wickedness in verse 13. And that word that's translated instrument there, it could also be weapon. Don't let any part of you be used as a weapon against you or against God in the battle with sin. Instead, Paul says that since we've been brought from death to life by the sacrifice of Jesus, we shouldn't offer ourselves to sin, but instead offer ourselves to God. Be His instrument, His weapon in the battle between the forces of good and evil. And then in verse 14, Paul wraps up by saying, because of grace, we don't have to be chained to sin. We don't need to let it be our master to reign over us. We have the power of Christ living within us. That very same power that raised Christ from the dead that power is available to us if we'll just use it. And that's some pretty amazing power. I know it's easy to get caught up in our day-to-day -day lives and forget the power that Jesus paid so much for us to have. I think a lot of times we aren't having victory in a battle with sin because we're trying to fight it on our own and forgetting to use the power that Jesus provides for us. I was at small group one night, probably 20 years ago. And while we were meeting, someone from the group who wasn't there reached out to one of the other folks in the group and, and threatened to commit suicide. We sent a couple of people there to, that were close to this lady to, to deal with her directly, and the rest of us began to pray. And at first, you know, we prayed for this lady in her situation. We, you know, in a scenario like this, you got to pray that the lives of the enemy are going to be broken in her mind and life, because clearly that was, that was going on there. But as we prayed, we just really started going after it. And I remember several of us being in tears, grieved by our own sin. Now, I have to admit, there aren't very many times in my life where I was, where I was that night. But as we prayed, I, I began to 
see my sin and my failure to take hold of Christ's power in the fight with it, I think the way God sees it. It's kind of that same reaction that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw his sin in relationship to a holy God. Isaiah said he, he was undone. He acknowledged his own sin and the sin of his people as well. And it made him humble and open to do whatever God asked of him. As we go into Holy Week, church, I, I want to challenge you. When we willingly live in sin and ignore the power to be unchained that God has given us, it's like we're trampling the blood of Jesus. It's like putting the nails in his hands all over again, sticking the spear back in his side. As we go into this week, let's renew our commitment to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, but like Jesus, choose to live a life that's all about God's glory. Not by toughing it out, not by controlling our behavior, but by understanding the truth of what Jesus has done for us and laying hold of the power that he's given us as we battle sin daily. Let's bow our heads. Folks, I, I want us to do some business with God today. Now, I know when you're talking about a subject like this one, it can be tough to respond. I know because I've been where you are many times, and I'm going, well, you know, someone might see me. You know, someone might think I don't have it all together. Someone might think I have sin in my life. Let me say two things about that. We've all sinned. Everyone in this room has sinned. I have sinned. We all have sin in our lives. Secondly, the only person we should care about what they think right now in this moment is God. Okay, with that out of the way, I wonder how many of us would say we're struggling with the guilt of sin. Do you need to take to heart today that if you've confessed your sin, you are forgiven. You aren't condemned any longer. You'd be like that fellow who came to Jesus. You just need to ask God to help you with your unbelief. If it's the guilt of sin you're grappling with, would you raise your hand so I can see it? I want to pray for you. Yeah. Yeah, I see those hands. Lots of them. Thank you. Maybe some of you are struggling with the lure of sin in your life. Maybe you need to make a decision today that you're going to get as far away from that cliff of sin as possible. Maybe you need to turn from something you're involved in right now. Do you need to use that power that, Christ, that raised Christ from the dead in your battle with sin? If that's you, would you raise your hand so I can see it? I want to pray for you too. Wow, lots of hands. Thank you for your courage. I know, I know, I know it's tough to admit that. Finally, maybe there's someone here you just you've never confessed your sin. You aren't set free from the eternal consequence of sin because you never believed in Jesus. You've never accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. If that's you, make sure before you leave this room today, you know for sure that your sins are forgiven. That Jesus has bridged sins canyon for you. If that's you, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? God, this morning, I know this is a tough thing to talk about, but I also know, God, that you don't want us to live in guilt. 
as so many of us do, that we're just paralyzed by it. And yet you've died to free us from that. So God, this morning, for these folks that are struggling with that, I pray that they would just feel the freedom, that they would know that you have forgiven them. They don't have to be perfect because you died for them. God, for those who are dealing with the lure of sin, we live in a culture that makes it tough. It puts it in front of us every minute of every day, it seems like. Oh God, I pray these folks would be able to lay hold of the, the mighty power that raised Christ from the dead as they battle. God, we, we want to be filled with, with a pure life, but it's, it's hard. Help us. God, help us. I pray that these folks would feel some victory today. That the truth of Scripture will release them from the bondage of sin. And God, if there is one here that's not been freed from the consequence of sin because they've never confessed their sin, I pray today would be the day that they would do it, God. Don't let them walk out of here and not know for sure. Don't let them walk out of here without being sure that they have a bridge over that canyon of sin. God, I ask all these things now in Jesus' name.